Welcome to the Mighty Littles Podcast. Hi, everybody. It's Anna from the Mighty Littles Podcast, and I'm really excited to have Sarah England here today to share their journey with their son, Sam. Sarah, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to do this. Great. Why don't we just start by having you introduce yourself to the Mighty Littles listeners and let us know a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so I am Sarah England. Like she said, I am um, a mom of three. I have three little kids at home. I have a first grader daughter, um, Maddie. I have a four-year-old son, Noah. And then I have Sam, who is our micro preemie miracle. He also has Down syndrome. He was born at 25 weeks gosh, he's going to be three in January, which I feel like just makes me feel like, holy moly, where did all this time go? But um, I am also a nurse turned stay-at-home mom. Um, I was a nurse, um, cardiothoracic ICU nurse for about eight years before, up until my daughter Maddie was born. Um, My husband was in the military, so we did a lot of traveling. Um, We've kind of lived all over and we settled in Houston, um, right? He got out of the military when I was pregnant with Maddie and we moved down here because that's where a lot of our family is and uh, started having kids. And that's just kind of where we've been. I feel like the, um, I also do um, on the side, I'm at like a health and fitness coach and I, that totally came in, just like swooped in in the middle of kids and has completely taken over in ways that I never imagined um, as a way to just like cope, <laughs> something to do for myself um, and turn into a, a very amazing business, which also created like a community that I feel like I now have like through Instagram, just special needs moms. I feel like literally like this community has just been everything. So um, that's just really about me. I'm just a mom of three trying to like survive (laughs) every day. (laughs) I think that's where we're all at right now, especially with COVID and not being able to leave the house. You're just like very long days, very full hearts, but very long days. Yeah. So why why don't you talk a little bit about kind of your journey into motherhood? Did you always know you wanted to be a mom? Did it just happen? Let's talk about that, that transition. Yeah, so I am somebody who always, I grew up with a very close relationship with my own mother. And I knew, I mean, ever since I was a little girl, like I played mama, just like, I feel like my daughter does. Um, and I just always wanted children. Um, I didn't, it wasn't necessarily like as soon as I graduated college. Um, but you know, like I knew, like I met, I met my husband when I was like my last year of nursing school, we dated for a while. He was in the military, we did long distance, that whole thing. We got married. We knew we wanted to have kids, but he was in special forces at the time. And I was like, that kind of, he was gone all the time. And I was like, you know, I was like, let's just continue just to, just to travel. And when you're home, we'll go places. And whenever you're kind of ready to tone, <laughs> like when his, his career was kind of coming to like, uh, either he's going to stay in for and make it like, uh, until he could retire or he had like this little window where he could get out and do something. And so that was kind of our window. It's like, we knew that was coming up and I was like, okay, I think we're ready. Cause I just, I have mad props to all of the military moms who do it with kids and, um, and deployments. I feel like, oh, I, I, that's like a whole nother thing. And so we started having to, like, we tried actually six months before he got out of the military and I ended up having my first miscarriage. We found out I was pregnant literally like two weeks before he was supposed to go on a three month deployment. 
And so while he was gone, I had a miscarriage. And that was like, I think, I think that experience as a whole, he was like, if we're going to do this, I have to be here. And it was just a decision. Like, I, like, you can't go through this again by yourself. It was just extremely, extremely difficult. We were living in Seattle. All of my family was in Texas and I was by myself. It was just like, my mom flew up and it was just a really like isolating experience. And I think my first window into like, wow, motherhood is really hard. <laughs> I wasn't even a mom yet, but it was like, I, I, I just really like something just was like, this is going to be, this is going to test me in ways I never even imagined. So I always say you fall in love with that baby the minute you find out that you're pregnant. And so oh you say, well, I wasn't even a mom yet, but I would say you were a mom and you were a mom to this baby that just didn't stay. Um, but it doesn't take away right. the fact that all of those floods of emotion that you feel the minute that you find out you're pregnant, you are, th- those are those mom feelings. Those are, those are, those are that transition into motherhood. And that happens the minute you find out that you're pregnant, whether that baby sticks or doesn't stick and whether that baby can be born alive or not, it's still, you are still a mother, even, even right then. Right. And I definitely think that that was something that I learned as we went on, because I remember feeling like grief and loss and things that I was like, oh my gosh, is this normal? Again, nobody talks about, nobody talks about miscarriage near as much. I know I was like, well, nobody's saying stuff and I'm just supposed to pretend like nothing happened. It was just a really hard experience for us. And so Thankfully, I did go on to have Maddie. Um, I got pregnant again without any issue. She had amazing pregnancy. I love being pregnant. She was born beautiful, healthy, seven pounds, seven ounce, perfect little girl. And I was like, she was my world. And I let, I 100% let motherhood consume me completely in all the good ways, but in also in the ways where I was like, who is Sarah? And I could kind of sense that because like, I didn't ever want to leave her. I didn't want to like relinquish control to anybody. Um, but again, it was my first. So I was like, this is where I'm supposed to be. <laughs> like, I didn't have anything to compare it to. I just didn't know. And so when we went on to have, um, Maddie was almost, she was two when we started trying to have my second. And then I did have two more miscarriages, um, between Maddie and Noah. And that time was just, um, some of the darkest days. I mean, we've, we've been through a lot with my son, Sam, but, not being able to carry a baby like it I think it just does something as a wife as a as already a mom like I you know you doubt yourself and my ability and like what's going on what's wrong with me like all of those things which I mean at the time that I feel like they're totally valid but I you know we again like entered this world where our friends were like well at least you know maybe there was something wrong with you know people say really hard things it's like they're trying to be comforting and they don't necessarily say the right thing and so we did find a fertility doctor and I have like a clotting disorder and so I was put on some medicine and within the next nine months I was able to get pregnant with Noah and I was able to have him I did have to do those daily injections which sucked but at the same time you know like I just wanted a healthy pregnancy I just but I lived with the Doppler like it was like because I was so terrified. I was so terrified. And I don't think like I thoroughly enjoyed his pregnancy the way I feel like I was naive with Maddie. She was my, it was, I had one, I was in la la land, you know, but then by having two more and then having Noah, like I just lived in terror. Like I had so much anxiety that 
I really feel like that's kind of what set me up to have some really bad postpartum anxiety and depression after him, which I didn't, I don't necessarily feel like I had full on after Maddie, but it definitely put me in that, in that realm of that, because after he was born, like day four, my C-section incision opened up. I'd have a wound back. It was like a whole shebang. And so like not being able to go upstairs, having wound, like your postpartum, like it was, it was a nightmare (laughs) situation. And so it just added to like, I couldn't care for him. I couldn't, you know, like the transition from one to two is like, like being slapped in the face. Like it's really hard. Um, Cause you're now like, there's two babies and you love them both. And you're like, but you need me and you need me. And I'm like, I can't even get up myself. Like I can't even go get her from a crib upstairs. And so I think that's really whenever I was like, oh my gosh, how am I like, how am I going to do this? Like I've, I've wanted my whole life to be a mother. I did, but there were, I, I really start to see things of like, of feeling like, like little pieces of me, just like, who am I type of thing of like, I, I, I really just lost myself in that transition truthfully. Like I like wearing my husband's t-shirts and like, just like not wanting to take care of myself, just low energy. Everybody's low energy after baby, but like to a point where like, you just don't want to care about yourself anymore. Like that's, that's not like normal newborn exhaustion, you know? And I just didn't recognize the signs of it. I, you know, it was, I would just remember being like, I've just had a baby. Things are crazy. I think it's so easy to pass that kind of stuff off, you know? Yeah. So I wanted to touch on a couple things that you said. So First, I think I'm really grateful that more people are willing to open up and share about their experiences with miscarriages. So I had my first pregnancy was a miscarriage, and then I had my older daughter. And then between my older daughter and my twins, I had at least one more miscarriage. Um, and I'm unsure if there was another one, right? Like it kind of felt like the other ones, but I never took a pregnancy test, so I don't know. And it is extraordinarily isolating because it, you feel kind of like nobody tells that you're pregnant for the first 12 weeks because there's this risk of miscarriage. But then when it happens because you didn't tell, now you're going through it alone and it just feels very isolating. And for whatever reason, once I had my first baby, it was easier for me to say, well, I had a miscarriage before her. And I started talking about it. And then all of a sudden, all these people came out of the woodwork. Oh, well, I had a miscarriage between my first and second baby. Or, well, I had a miscarriage. Or, I mean, it just, it's so common, but people don't talk about it. So it feels isolating. So I'm really grateful that people are, women are starting to talk about that experience with miscarriage. Because I really think, I I mean, I just go back to, You fall in love with that baby the minute you find out you're pregnant. And it is totally grief when when something doesn't go the way that we expect it. And and it is okay to grieve the loss of that pregnancy. It's it's important. It's healing. It's something that needs to happen. So thank you for sharing that you had your miscarriages. I think it's helpful for people to hear that. Second, I think anytime you have something that doesn't go well, the next time you're going through it. You have this mm-hmm. upped level of anxiety. Um, as a neonatologist, I work in a NICU, so I know exactly what goes on and what goes wrong. And 
my husband used to tell me, just relax. Everything is fine. There's no problems. What are you worried about? And and I called it being blissfully ignorant. And you, and you said that, right? You just kind of didn't know with your first pregnancy. You were blissfully ignorant. Um, and, and that's mm-hmm. a lovely place to be. And I wish everybody could be in that. But when you've already had an experience and you, you've got that kind of baseline anxiety, you do live with your Dopplers and you do have that elevated anxiety. And I, and I think that okay. does set you up for postpartum depression and anxiety. And then the, the last thing that you were talking about that I wanted to touch on was this idea that we, we want to be mothers so badly and then when we are mothers, there are parts of it that are really hard. Having a two and a half or three-year-old with a newborn with a C-section scar that opened up with a wound vac, I mean, quite frankly, that sucks. There's just no other word for it. That is so <laughs> not fair and not fun. But you almost feel right. guilty saying, man, this really sucks because you right. so wanted to have these kids and you so wanted to be a mom. And I think one thing about right. motherhood that we should talk about and embrace a little bit more, especially for moms that are in the NICU or who have a pregnancy that falls outside the norm of what we expect to to have happen, it's okay to feel two things at once. You can be grateful mm-hmm. and angry at the same time. You can be overwhelmed and happy at the same time, whether that's because you have two littles and an open C-section wound or because you have a baby in the NICU and you're going home for the first time and you have to leave your baby at the hospital and you're so grateful that he's doing so well and you're so upset that you're going home to an empty house without your baby. It's okay to feel both of those at the same time. Oh, for sure. I... I didn't necessarily, I, that's not a concept that I really feel like I, I grasped until Sam, because I remember being like, this was very hit home for us when we finally, when we brought Sam home from the NICU and holy crap, it was hard. It was really hard. Like I had such tunnel vision when he was in the hospital, even the nurse in me didn't think, well, Sarah, you might want to get them to like you know, combine the noon and th- like the midnight and 3 a.m. med if they can't, because he was getting like potassium and sodium chloride every three hours. And I was like, ding, ding, ding. But it, you know, like I was in mama mode, not nurse mode. And it was like, I came home and I was no more mom. I was nurse. And it was like, why didn't I change this? And so anyways, it was just, it was so hard to feeds and oxygen and all the things and two other small kids now that I remember just struggling so much because it was like I literally had everything I had ever wanted because we prayed so hard that he would live and that he would make it home and then I felt so guilty for being like this is so hard I need help <laughs> like because I am a typical I want to do it all type of person right. I am that mom I don't delegate very well you know we tried a home nurse didn't work very well. Cause it was like, it's not my way. She's in my space. And it's like, I wanted help, but I also like I, more so than I wanted help. I wanted just the validation that it was hard situation. We were in was really hard, was really impossible. And I think for lack of a better word for those around us and like, what would be like neighbors, church family, you know, social circle, like, well, 
the initial outpouring of support for us was immense and overwhelming almost, you know, like 147 NICU stay, like day NICU stay, like gets old news at some, you know, like people's life goes on. And as it should, I'm not saying like their life should have stopped because of ours, but it was like, by the time he made it home, it was like, well, uh, I'm like, now I need the, now I need the meals. (laughs) Now I need somebody to come play with Maddie and Noah. Um, and I felt like we were drowning. And so it was just one of those where it's like, I felt so thankful and yet so overwhelmed beyond overwhelmed anything I'd ever felt my entire life in those first two months. Like it was, it, I mean, it, and it was everything we ever wanted. And I, there was so much guilt around that. And I mean, I've, I've let that go, but you know, and move, moved on and worked through that. And, you know, and I think a lot of that happens whenever you are, you know, hindsight and right learning so much about myself in this journey, you know, but you can't, you can't process through those feelings while you're in it. It's just it's impossible so because you're, you're just in it. You, you do have tunnel vision and you have to have tunnel vision and you have to, this is what I have to do today and this is what I have to do tomorrow and you don't have time to think and process and deal with those emotions and and I think that's totally fine and part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast was that so people who are in the NICU who are feeling overwhelmed or people who are in those first six months at home who are up at two o'clock in the morning feeding a baby I used to listen to podcasts when I was up at two o'clock in the morning feeding my babies Uh, it was kind of a nice I didn't have to do anything. I was feeding twins. I was using both my hands, but it was something that was stimulating. They can hear this and hear, oh, yes, I'm grateful and I'm overwhelmed. And it's okay because so was she. So were they. Somebody right. else has done this right. too. Um, so I, I just think that that's, that's helpful to hear. So we kind of jumped forward to Sam coming home and how that felt. Why don't we go back to Sam's NICU stay and just try to, I mean, I think as NICU parents, we can point out almost every single day and what happened, but for the (laughs) listeners, how about we try to like summarize the stay in terms of how, how it went, what were the big hiccups type of stuff? We, so Sam was he was born at 25 weeks and ultimately we did not there was no indication that he was coming early I had Chris the day before Christmas I had gone in for an ultrasound at our maternal fetal medicine doctor he's really good here in Houston checked the cord everything looked fantastic he was probably actually the best ultrasound I had had my entire pregnancy with him so far and that was 23 weeks in a day I think I was at that point. Um, like we had had a fetal echo, everything was good. Like he had been cleared of heart conditions, which is on, which is not so common in kids yeah, with fantastic. Down syndrome. So we were like, we passed our hurdle finally. <laughs> and so, um, I though about two days before he was born, you know, being my third, I got you, you know, you're used to what a kick feels like, what movement feels like, even at 25 weeks, like I knew, and I like, I, I usually always felt him in the evening. And so I remember the night before bed, I was like, I haven't felt him. So I got my Doppler out and his heart rate was fine. And I was like, okay, my placenta was in the front. And so they're like, you're not going to feel him. And he's smaller because he has Down syndrome. So just you're fine, you know? 
And they had told me that for weeks before. And so I was like preparing me that his kicks might not be as strong, et cetera, et cetera. And so I kind of, I brushed it off because there was a heart rate and the Doppler was fine. And the next morning I was like, you know, I still haven't really felt him. And so I would like press on my belly a little bit and see if I'd feel a move. But then it was like, oh, I've got to go do carpool. And then I got to go do this. So I remember after I dropped my daughter off, Noah was 16 months, so still baby. <laughs> and I picked up donuts and orange juice and I got, came home and laid down. And I was like, okay, I'm going to drink this and see if it moves. He didn't move. Long story short with that was that, you know, it was determined that I had placenta failure. I went in to triage. They did a biophysical profile. He literally, there was no amniotic fluid. I wasn't linking. My placenta just failed. And, you know, that mother's intuition is everything. Cause I was just like, there's something not right. Even though he has a heartbeat and he was flailing heartbeat was perfect on the monitor. So I was admitted. They tried to get, they gave me my first dose of steroids. They really wanted to keep him in, but he was just circling. He was just not doing well on the strips. Um, they, he was born the next morning, which was probably, I mean, just the most, I feel like I, I can think about it in my head, how it played out, but just the most surreal moments. Like I remember there's a few things that just stick out in my head. And one of them is my OB pacing our room. Like nobody wants to deliver a 25 weeker, nobody. And I just remember looking at her face of like, she was even unsure, like if I deliver him, he might not live. If he stays in, he's definitely not going to live. Like, what are my odds here? And I, you know, and she had delivered all my kids and I was just like, you know, like I trust like whatever you need to do, you do. Cause I don't know what to do in this situation. And she was just like, okay, like I, Sarah, she's like, I don't think I can wait any longer. Like we need to do this. And so it was just Pat, my husband and I like looked at each other and was like, this is so unreal. And I remember trying, you know, we were in the OR and I remember trying to tell myself, what is he going to look like? Like, what is this going to be like? And I, they literally had, she, she, there was no, they had to peel the bag of water off of him. Like it was, it was, it was crazy. And I just remember there's another distinct moment for me was that the NICU team at the hospital we delivered, like hands down, I don't think I could have had a better experience. Truly. They let me hold him. And I will, I'm literally, I remember that doctor's name and I'm forever grateful for that. Cause it, I, it would be three weeks before I could like literally truly hold him again. And they gave me that moment, like five people, they had intubated him already and brought him to me and put him up to my face. And I just like, it, it was one of those moments that I'm forever grateful for having it. Cause you didn't, I didn't know if there was going to be any more moments. Like they gave me every moment I could have. Um, and crazy mama bear that I am, I was like demanded to see him in recovery. And I'm probably to this day, one of the few people they actually let roll into his NICU. But I really feel like, again, it was like, we don't know how much time he has. So we're going to give this crazy grieving mother, like whatever chance she has. And so I was able to see him all tubed up and taped and all the machines and everything they wheeled me in there I was literally and I was like I'm gonna pump next to him like I had these things and I was like if I can get to this moment well if I can't hold him then I'm gonna pump next to him so I can make this milk like what can I do I can't do anything it was like I, I've never felt so helpless in my life and um oh my god that journey 147 days was ultimately like what we spent the first eight were the hardest were the hardest in terms of 
moment to moment. Like the rest of it was hard because it was like watching paint dry. It felt like it was going so slow. The first eight weeks were all about like, is he going to be on a ventilator his whole life? Like uh, we went off the oscillator on the oscillator, uh, lots of steroids, um, lots of make a change, wait four days, don't touch him, don't move him, nothing. You know, um, it was 21 days before I could hold him. And it took like four people to put him on my chest. He was so tiny. And I, I just have to point was... out, I just have to point out that he has trisomy 21 and you held him on day 21. Yeah. Like, I can't ignore yeah, that I fact. I don't I don't know why it sticks yeah, out to me, but yeah. it does. Yeah, that it, I know. It was, it's so amazing. Like, and he was still tiny. He was one pound, four ounce when he was born. And I think then he was only like one pound, eight. Like he was still like, wasn't even a pound and a half, I think at that point. Um, but his respiratory system was his big thing. Like they, with the, and I think that was all caused from the lack of amniotic fluid. He wasn't practicing breathing. Um, plus the trauma from being intubated. He had developed chronic lung disease and bronchopulmonary dysplasia. Um, and just like he was very, his respiratory system was his big thing. He did have a tiny PDA. He did have a small VSD, but those things, um, which are both little holes in the heart for the non-medical people. Um, he did have two of those and, but they were never really, they were never his things. His thing was oxygenation was getting him the treatment that he needs. And the thing is, it was just really long. Like he was intubated for six weeks. He was on CPAP for eight weeks. He was on high flow for six weeks. And then it was like, okay, we're on two liters. A week later, a week and a half later, we go to one liter. Another two weeks later, we might go to three fourths of a liter. Like it was just, it was so slow. And we did it. We thankfully, while he was in the NICU, he never contracted an infection and there wasn't any major hiccup other than like just time. Like he needed some blood transfusions, you know, in the beginning, those first few weeks, there was a few calls in the middle of the night of like, you have to come up here because we don't know what's going to happen next, basically type of situation. But he was so sick and so fragile that it was like, he needed to get to 28 weeks. Like those first three or four weeks were really hard. He needed to get to like the 28, 30 week mark. And then like, truthfully, he really kind of, he was started to look more like a baby. I mean, it's really hard to like have the connection and everything like he his eyes were fused shut his skin was translucent like you couldn't there's no rubbing you know like hand hugs and it's like all the natural things that you think like I remember like wanting to stroke him and the nurse is like don't do that you hold him like this and I was like I don't even know how to hold my baby like I just remember everything was so emotional you know like you don't know what you don't know and the nurse and me I knew a lot of things but I didn't know NICU you know and so um I, we, we made the rounds. We were, we were in level three to level two to level four. We went, we saw, we did the NICU tour while we were there. Cause we were there for so long. Um, and he did come home with an NG tube and with oxygen, um, both of which I was like, whatever, we're leaving. <laughs> I don't care. Like we were going to go, but I will say that with that being said, the one tiny, and I say tiny, I feel like it, it kind of came out of nowhere was like to, when they were doing like, okay, we're going to do your car seat test and you have to do your hearing test and we're going to do one final echo. And this was like 10 days before our soft discharge date, you know, 
and they found that he had pulmonary hypertension and they're like, this is common in kids with down syndrome. Is it residual from his chronic lung disease? Is this new? And I was like me, the nurse in me who had had experience of that with adults. I was like, no, because in an, in an adult, like it's terrifying. And I was like, Oh my God, what is like, and I feel like if there was one of the hardest moments, it was that moment. And they were like, well, he needs medication for this now. And this could push back your, your discharge date. And I like lost it on those people that day. I was like, we're leaving on this day. You get him what he needs when he needs it. I was like, you call the insurance company. This is not happening. Like we have been here so many days. Oh my gosh. I remember our neonatologist like came up and told my husband, he's like, I think your wife is very mad at me today. (laughs) I was like, I'm sorry for the things that I said when Sam was in the NICU. But we all know, I mean, it's funny because we as neonatologists all go in a room and I and I know what I'm getting ready to say is going to break these parents hearts and your baby's on a five-day Brady countdown and today is the day that you were day five and gonna get to go home but your baby dropped his heart rate to 50 overnight and I can't send you home today and you I know walking in there that I'm going to devastate them and they're gonna just like totally lose it and I don't want to say it any more than you want to hear it right so we I give parents a lot of leeway in those situations because you have a right to feel disappointed and mad and sad and all those things wrapped into one um and and it just it just is what it is right it's the it's life in the NICU where you're following your baby's cues even though you want to control what's happening you literally can't because he is in control that is, if there was a quote that summed up Sam's journey as he is in control. <laughs> we don't know what we're doing still. He is driving this bus. Like, yes, totally. Know. Oh my gosh. Like literally that's his slogan for life. He's in control. Cause he just did like, like completely just, I mean, he's teaching us so much patience. Cause I feel like, I mean, I definitely didn't feel this way when we were living it. I was, you know, oh my God, it was so hard. I, and I mean, and Maddie and Noah were so little, I would leave, you know, so I would leave early, you know, we live about 45 minutes from the hospital. I would leave early and like pump in the car and then get there and then like put my milk away and go to the milk bank and then eat something really fast. Cause then I like had to hold him and then I only had so much time to hold him and then to pump again and then I was like oh my god now I have to go get my child from preschool it was like being on a you know like a never-ending like hamster wheel of monotony and I don't I sometimes it's like people are like how did you get you just do like there's no you don't have an option it's like you you're on an escalator and there's no off like you're just going up I'm like one of these days I'm going to be able to get off this is going to end and it's going to be better and I feel like the the first for us because we were there for god almost half of a year you know um the first two or three months were hard but then I feel like month three month four were like this is smooth sailing you know it was like weaning oxygen now he's learning to take a bottle but everything was so slow and i just I, one of the things that i would just remember my mom would be like well what's new today i'm like nothing it's the same as yesterday like please don't ask me i will tell you if there's something new <laughs> and that can be said still for days with sam like 
you know, I love our family members and our friends that care so much. Well, what did you do today? And it's like, it doesn't, I remember I had a therapist that told us, it's like Sarah, his, his, his progress is going to be measured in months, not in days and weeks. And I was like, as much as I needed to hear it, it felt like a slap in the face because it was like, okay. And so I had to set that expectation with friends and family. Like, look, if there's something big, believe me, I'm going to share it. But until then, it's just like Groundhog Day over here, yeah. you know? Yeah, it's just giving him time. So, so I want to yeah. talk a little bit about um, when you found out that Sam had Down syndrome and okay. what it was like to process through that emotion. Because I think parents can, you get that news through however you get it, either from the ultrasound or from a cell-free DNA or from an amnio. And there can be some processing then. And I think there can also be a little bit of denial until the baby's actually born. But then you also had to process through him being born at 25 weeks, which adds a whole nother layer of uncertainty to it. So we did genetic testing solely to find out the gender. That's what we did with Noah. And I was like, either I'm keeping Maddie's clothes or he's getting Noah's hand-me-downs. That's where my mind was. Even the nurse in me didn't even dawn on me that like genetic testing tests for genetic anomalies, Sarah, hello. Like there could be a chance in my world that I lived in, that wasn't my chance. Like I was so oblivious. It was never even, so it wasn't like I wanted to know because I wanted to like have choices to make. It was like, I want to know what the sex is. Like that's just me and my personality. And so Pat was on a work trip. I'll never forget. I was literally sitting on the couch one afternoon. It was like four o'clock. And my OB called me and I was like, hello. And she's like, Sarah, um, so your genetic test results show that I think it was like a 58% chance that there's, it doesn't say what, it just says that there is a genetic anomaly and most likely Down syndrome. Cause that's what my OB said. She's like, but it could be any of the trisomies basically. Um, and I was like, are you serious? And she was like, yeah, like I'm, you know, like I know this is not what you expected. I was, you were probably just expecting to find out the gender. And I was like, oh my God, like, what do we do next? And I really feel like I was in denial because I immediately Googled everything, which you shouldn't do. Um, and it was like, you know, false, po false positives. People have that all the time. And I remember, you know, like, I remember, I think I, I had, um, and I think I had shared something like we got some uneasy news because at the time, you know, I had started like my coaching journey and started just sharing like my postpartum with Noah, this pregnancy, you know, how I was excited about it because Sam's pregnancy was the first one we had had without having a miscarriage first. And he was also, it was a surprise pregnancy. And so like, we were like, I was so happy and relieved to have this miracle baby who didn't, I mean, I wasn't taking my injections when he was, I was pregnant with him, like just miracle literally from the beginning. And so to have this, I was like, you know, I'd started sharing. I just remember people already telling me, Sarah, it's probably fine. Like I know so many people who have false positives. My cousin had that. My friend had that. So in my head, I was like, okay, like, this is probably just getting me all worked up over nothing. And so she's like, I want you to come in and do a nuchal translucency, like, you know, measure the fluid on the back of the neck um, with like a fancier ultrasound and do some more blood work. And I was like, okay. Um, and so we went in for that scan and had genetic tests. So we had genetic testing first 
which they, they were like, how would you feel if your baby has down syndrome? And I was like, it was really one of the worst six that day, like will probably go down as one of the worst days ever, because I was like, I don't know. Are you telling me he does have it? Like, you don't know. So why are you asking me that question? I, we were super defensive because it was like, how would you feel? And I'm like, I don't even know. Like, I can't process something I'm not sure about. Like, I can't process something that you're just like giving me a, like a what if scenario. I have no idea how I would feel if he had Down syndrome. Are you telling me he does? And it was just like such a weird thing because it was like, it was happening before the ultrasound. I would not suggest that at all. I feel like genetic counseling should happen after processing, in my opinion. Like the order of the things that we had was just like, have genetic testing, learn about all these what ifs and like where they ask you all these questions. Like you're already anxious as it is before this ultrasound and they're asking you all this stuff. I'm like, this is so not the time. Like I want to have the ultrasound and then have these conversations. I think that's well, a totally valid point. Um, <laughs> and and we, we do that. We you'll meet our genetic counselors when something comes back abnormal right. and then they'll say hey these are all the tests that we're going to send and we will regroup right. once we have an answer for you and then if we don't have an answer right. for you then we say we don't have an answer and then we move forward um but i can see how in your situation that was super frustrating because in your mind you were still flat in the denial that well, you're saying that it oh, might be there, but you don't know that that's where we are. So you were flat in denial and right. they were in, you know, we tend to believe these tests and we think probably your baby has right. Down syndrome. So how would you feel? And before yeah. we go into the ultrasound to kind of prove it or see what we see, we're just trying to get an right. idea of where you're at from a processing standpoint. Right. But you weren't even to that point yet. So it just didn't, no. it just didn't work. Yeah almost feel like a social worker should be talking to people or something like whenever I, I it was just um there was just like it, it was just like one of the most robotic just like very odd conversations I feel like I had like along this entire journey like it was just really I mean the ultrasound didn't go much better because the doctor who did it basically came in well, the, of course, the ultrasound tech did, did what she was going to do. And then the doctor came in and very blatantly told us that we had an unhealthy pregnancy, that if he lived, he would, um, that if I, if I made it to 20 weeks were her words, he would be stillborn, that, um, that we had choices to make and that he wasn't healthy. And Pat and I literally lost my mind and was like demanding to see my doc because my doctor didn't do the ultrasound this is in the hospital where we were at there's like a specialty clinic um for like high-risk pregnancies and that's where we were so different doctor not even on the same floor and I was like I don't care what patient she has right now I'm literally walking in that office because I want her to tell me what does this dude see and why is this so bad like what I don't see it because in my mind I see a little 13 week old baby boy whose arms and legs are going crazy on that ultrasound healthy has a heartbeat and in my mind all of my previous pregnancies that weren't healthy I had a miscarriage there was no heartbeat so you're telling me this baby like what's wrong with this heart well we don't know yet like what are you seeing that's so bad and they like his markers like he didn't have the um the he's 
still had a nasal bone. So like that wasn't a marker for us. It was just the fluid on the back of his neck was really high. And they're like, the assumption was that they were making was that he probably had high drops. He didn't, but that's what they were assuming. But I will still even say after doing things and knowing plenty of babies who've lived from high drops, like, again, it's not necessarily like they were basically sending him like a death sentence and like we had a choice and what is your choice going to be tell me right now it was like the it was the worst experience I've ever had and I was just crying and like somebody give me an answer and tell me like explain to me really why this is so bad and they just were like you need to just talk to your OB you just need you need to talk to your own doctor and she can explain to you. And I'll never forget sitting in her office. And I was just like, what is it about this? That's so scary. And she was just like, well, the fluid on the back of the neck is a lot. She's just like, but she's like, but that doesn't mean anything. She's like, I'm going to, you know, she's like her um, husband's cousin. She's like, my husband's cousin has down syndrome serum. He's in college right now and is living his best life. She was like, I can tell you without a doubt that having a baby with Down syndrome is not a death diagnosis. And that is absurd. And I will, you know, she's like, apologize profusely that we had such a horrible experience. And from then on, I saw a different maternal fetal medicine doctor at a different, um, here in Houston, there's, I mean, there's, it's like the Mecca of medical centers here. So we went to a different, um, like fetal heart center, uh, fetal medicine center that specializes in high-risk pregnancies. And so from there, we saw this other doctor um, who was like, you know, um, he was just like, this honestly doesn't look that bad. He does. He's like, you know, we won't know for certain until we do a test. I was like right on the cusp of like, couldn't do a CVS, could do an amio, like the 15, 16 week mark at that time. And I am one of those people that had to know it's not that like, it wasn't a thought that Pat and I weren't going to have this baby after everything that we've been through. Um, it just wasn't, you know, I understand like when people receive the information like that we received, it makes them question their judgment on like, am I harming the baby if I keep them alive because of the, because of the words that they were using, like they were just like, you have decisions. And it was like, I do wait, what? Like, it, it, the way that it was positioned to us made me almost question like our thoughts and beliefs and like what we wanted. And it was just, it's so crazy because I imagine so often people with less medical knowledge than we have, um, less exposure, less knowledge, less just like willing to challenge doctors and get second, second opinions, you know, um, and they make a choice based on that. And it like, I think about that and it just breaks my heart because I feel like sometimes it's just the lack of, of awareness and of knowledge of like what Down syndrome actually means and can mean for someone's family. We eventually got, and so from that, because I just wanted to know for sure, is it a different trisomy? Like they couldn't tell me, you know, and just for me knowing, and I like to be prepared and I want the resources. I didn't necessarily want them all at one time, but I knew that I needed, I knew I needed support and I knew I needed to be able to ask people who were walking this journey. So I wanted specifics and I wanted to know if the baby we were carrying would have Down syndrome. And so, um, and so we did it. I don't, I don't regret doing it because it allowed me to kind of just like prepare and grieve because it's a grieving process. I will say I grieve his diagnosis still in some way, shape or form sometimes because it is, it's not, 
it's not a linear thing. Like it is a, it is a roller coaster. Yeah. After learning that we, that he had it. And it literally three years ago, we found out down syndrome awareness month three years ago. And it was like this group and this friend, and I have this person. And I just remember like wanting to crawl into a hole because as much as I want support, I also like wanted to be able to like funnel and protect what I was feeling. And like what I tell new, um, like new moms now who receive a diagnosis is like, I have resources when you're ready. Mm-hmm. I have a person to talk to when you're ready. I know a great group, prenatal group when you're ready. Like in that prenatal group, the Down syndrome diagnosis network prenatal group, like saved me. I am still friends with so many of those ladies, like really good friends. Um, like probably one of the best hands down resources that I have that I had. Um, but again, it was like, I like started developing what I can only call as like little boxes in my head of things of like, I can only open so much at one time. Like I can only, um, deal with so many things. And it was like, you know, I had people coming out of the woodwork, you know, I had a friend say something to me of like, I thought was a friend, you know, relationships have definitely changed a lot for me since Sam, but she was just like, what is, what is going to happen with your older kids? And I was like, and I did a post about this recently because it was just like, they're going to be better people because of him. I mean, at the time she was question, it made me question, like, I'm, I'm going to have a child with special needs and it's going to change our entire family dynamic. Well, I can't control it because I'm going to have this baby. And so you're telling me what's going to happen to my family, you know, like support would be nice. And I think about that conversation so often now of just like how people perceive and think and want to respond when somebody is in crisis when somebody receives news and the thing is is to not like give them more questions and more uncertainty you need to like say I'm here for you if you need anything here's some coffee (laughs) or well if you're pregnant not a bottle of wine (laughs) yeah after you deliver um, I'll I'll deliver I'll bring you a bottle of wine you You deliver your baby and I will deliver you a box of a box of wine I, th- I think it's yeah. it's interesting that you say that because one of the themes that keeps coming up over and over and over again as I talk to moms whose pregnancies and deliveries and and growing a family don't go kind of according to normal, which I kind of hate that phrase, but you know, according to plan, I guess is a better a better phrase, right. um, is that people don't know what to say. And in the process right. of not knowing what to say, they say the wrong thing. And you have your, right. you know, one person that I talked to called them optimism bullies, right? So it's going to be fine. Everything happens for a reason. You don't get more than you need. God doesn't give you more right. than you can handle. And, you know, oh, I hate that. Yeah, that's, it's such a, I think it kind of discounts what you're feeling. I think it's a little yes. bit punitive. Oh, so God decided that I need a baby with X, Y, and Z. Right. Why Why me? Why, why do I need this baby, right? right. Um, right. It, and so I kind of want to write a book about how to talk to people who are in crisis and grieving, particularly around babies, because people just want to make everything better and they want to tell you it's going to be okay and they want to make it pretty and put it in a pretty box and say, oh, look how great this is. Um, 
And so, and it's just not, and people need to feel comfortable saying, I am so sorry. This must be so hard. Can I bring you a cup of coffee? Or I know you're going through a hard time. Would you like to take a bath? I'd be happy to watch your two kids in the backyard for you while you take a bath and just relax with your thoughts. And you just have to be quiet, sit there and be quiet and listen and And they will, whoever is going through it will bring things up to you. And you don't try to solve it. You don't try to fix it. You don't try to make them feel better about it. You just sit there and it's hard and you let it be hard and you're there with them while it's hard. Right. I remember after we got his diagnosis, like getting on Instagram and it was a lot of roses and daisies and Down syndrome is amazing, which is good. Right. Um, But what I didn't see was like a lot of like the hard. And I am somebody who like, I want you to shoot it to me straight. (laughs) Like, I don't want to be lied to it. He's just like any other child. Any other child is not raised, is not roses and daisies. Like you're going to have struggles. And I just remember, I just remember saying like, and telling Pat, like when somebody tells me congratulations right now, I want to punch them. Cause I'm not, I was not in a congratulations place. I was in like, you're having a baby and that is amazing, but this is like really heavy and really complicated and all these levels of emotion that I never felt before. And when people are like, it's going to be the greatest journey of your life. And I feel like my life is a little bit over for lack of a better word or sounding dramatic, but it did like, it felt like, Um, I was afraid of what it would be, you know, and the so ironic part of it all is if, whether, if you're a God person, you know, whatever spirituality you're is, I always say like, God wanted to show us something, what we, what would be harder than a baby with down syndrome. And that is a baby being born at 25 weeks. Like what was 10 times harder was him being a micro preemie because then when he was born, the him having down syndrome like it became an afterthought until i don't know until all the evaluations and him coming home the therapy started and the real life of like having a kid with medical problems and having a kid with special needs like it's a double whammy and so it was levels of like well i kind of tabled the down syndrome diagnosis because we were dealing with micro preemie and 25 weeker and a lot of that was not like it was read off in his diagnosis every single day, but it was not like, it was not at the forefront. All of his respiratory issues were at the forefront. And so for me, it like the, the grieving and the process and just learning and everything just came in phases. And I, like you said, really did not like, like when people would try and tone down, like everything's gonna be fine. You can't, don't say like, you don't know, you know? Like when people would tell us that like, he's going to be great. And it was like, we just had our pastor come here. Like, like just saying like, how can we support you? Not like, don't try and make it better. And the thing that I've learned is that like, people want to kind of make it about them, like what makes them comfortable. And if they're comfortable saying, and it makes them feel good, like, but take you out of the equation, what do they need? And I think that's the big thing is because it's uncomfortable for people Um, And I feel like it was uncomfortable for people, for me to share some of those early pictures of Sam, Mm -hmm. like, because he didn't look like a cute little bundle of joy baby with the, I mean, his hat was like half the size of his body. He was so small. 
I mean, it just, and I think people don't know what to say and it is better than it's like, is saying nothing worse or saying the wrong thing worse. And I think that's something that I definitely try and talk about. It's like things that are, um, what are you, what do you say? Um, and how do you say it and how do you support somebody? Cause I think it's so important. People want to put themselves at the four, you know, like what do they think feels good? your perception right now is not the right perception. <laughs> well, and I think I think it's really hard when you're trying to walk that balance because I think right. like the only thing you have to draw from is what would what would make me feel good. And so you draw from that, right. which may not be the same thing as what makes the person who's going through it feel good. And at the same time, right. I also know that when you're going through crisis and somebody says what can I do for you? How can I help? Most of the time, the answer is, I'm good. I'm fine. I got it. Because you're so wrapped up in what's happening that you're not thinking about all the other stuff that you need. And so you need somebody who can just show up and say, I brought you X, Y, and Z. And it's it's what they think would be helpful to them. And they bring it to you. So you need a little bit of both because you don't just want people barraging you with questions. What do you need? What do you need? What do you need? And you also don't need people telling you what they need or giving you what they need. And so you are trying to kind of walk this balance between what's helpful and what's harmful. And, you know, for strangers, you give them a little bit of leeway. Great. Thank you for bringing me this meat lasagna. We're vegetarians. You didn't know we were vegetarians? Fine. Right. Great. I mean, that I'm just, I'm just using that as an example. People brought us lasagnas and we ate them um, when my son was in the hospital. So the, you know, yeah, it's it's just a really hard line to, to walk and to balance. And yep. you want to be supportive and you don't want to say the wrong thing. And to your point about people saying congratulations, and you weren't in a congratulations phase. I am guilty of that, because I'll say, congratulations on your pregnancy. I'm so sorry you're here meeting with me because of X, Y, and Z. Because you're still a mom, and you're still pregnant, and I still want to be happy for that. And at the same time, I am sorry that you're here and meeting with me, right? So you just don't, you're eventually you are going to say the wrong thing at some point to somebody because everybody needs something different yeah I think like the most someone can say is like I want to be here for you like how can I help you and even if so or like you know because I remember if you don't feel comfortable saying that to somebody, then tell it to somebody who you do feel comfortable with and have them be like your middle person you know a big reason why I continue to just do mass announcements on social media was because it limited the amount of times I had to tell the same story over and over again. And I could not, I couldn't, I had texts and emails and messages. And I was like, I can, how Sam, did you see my posts? Why are you messaging me? (laughs) Which sounds terrible. I appreciate your concern, but like, I just like, I think, you know, sometimes It was just really hard. I think it's a very hard journey. And I think, you know, you have to understand that like the person is navigating an unimaginable, like an unimaginable situation. And if you can just show like a little bit of compassion and empathy and say, I want to help, um, gift cards, 
watching the kids, house cleaning, running errands, doing the stuff that that person, that mom doesn't need to be worried about that family meals, childcare, like, um, I mean, we had so many donations for like the parking garage and gas because we were going 45 minutes each way, sometimes twice a day because Pat would go at night and I'd go in the morning Right, and, you know, parking bills and food and dinners on the go and childcare, like all that stuff adds up. So if you don't ever know what to do, I mean, I, I mean, a meal and a gift card go a really long way in this scenario. And just like, we're thinking of you, I will continue to check in. There should be no expectation on the other end that like, they're going to respond right away or get an email personalized back to them. They will eventually get a thank you. I'm pretty sure my mom wrote most of my thank you cards. <laughs> but again, like me taking that off of my chest of like, I don't have the bandwidth at 2 a.m. to be writing. <laughs> No, but I think it's so, it's so interesting that you're talking about it because, um, I just released a podcast yesterday. So we're recording this on October 1st and I did a podcast with the messy mama podcast. So the two of us did a joint podcast on 10 things you, that will, you know, be so good for you to know when you go in the NICU. And one of them was have a communication plan. And so your communication plan ended up being social media because you didn't want to have to talk to everybody individually. And I think that's a great, a a great example of for you and your life that worked best. And for other people, they're off social media entirely and they're only communicating. I tell my mom and my mom communicates with absolutely everybody else. That's my communication plan or, or, you know, not mine personally, but you know, who, whatever you can come up with all these different communication plans. And I love your point about send a text message that says, I'm thinking about you. I'm here for you. I dropped off a gift card. I'll check in again next week. I'm very clearly saying, I don't expect you to message me back. I saw your post. I gave you this stuff. I'm here to support you. I leave the window open. If you need me, you know, you can text me but I'm not putting any additional right. demand on you. I think that's huge. It's very huge because people then, especially me, like I would have been a person that would have tried to email every single person individually. And one thing this journey taught me was boundaries and just what I can and can't do. And I've gotten, it didn't happen right away, but it got really, it just became really clear. And like, I was really you know, like my mom, like you were saying, was the person for all my family members, like aunts and uncles who don't have Facebook or didn't have Instagram. Like she would be the relayer of a poet copy paste and send the picture that Sarah posted, like, so that I didn't have to do that. And so I think it's just, I think it's so important to have that, to have that system, even if you're like, it seems overwhelming to even delegate something. Um, everybody has, like a confidant, even if it's, maybe it's your spouse, you know, I also know like there's those websites, like, is it caring bridge or something? Yeah. There's caring bridge. People tend um, to use them a little bit less now, now that there's so much social media, they tend to use that more, but they are still there. And some people really do still use them. Yeah. I think that's, I think just, I think this is a time when you can be selfish. If I have to say (laughs) like, you do what serves you and your family. And if I, I got really good at saying no to things that I didn't, I didn't feel comfortable doing. I didn't want to talk about, I didn't want to do. I, um, I didn't overextend myself. I had no 
so, like regrets telling people, no, you can't come up to the hospital. Sam's immune system is really fragile. No, I'm sorry. You can't like, and I, and this is going to sound insensitive, but I, it's not that I didn't care, but it's like, I didn't have, like, I didn't have the capacity to worry if I was hurting their feelings or, you know, and that sounds, but it was just my way of protecting my peace of just saying like, of just setting boundaries. And I knew like, um, and expectations. And I knew that like, it would ruffle feathers with family and friends, but I ultimately like, I knew if I couldn't handle it and if something was going to stress me out, like I just didn't, I didn't do it. I simply did not do it. And this came into play. Like when Sam, we started immersing from a bubble and like family gatherings when he was still on oxygen, like just didn't happen. Like either like we would divide and conquer, um, Pat would take the big kids or I would take them if it was my family or like whatever. And I just, it just was what it was. If people didn't get it, it did. I didn't care because it wasn't their life. They weren't living our day to day. Um, like the fear of him getting sick and Noah giving him RSV and like all the craziness that we went through his first 18 months. Like it was one of the times that I just learned that like what served me and my family and was just like fiercely protective of that. And I feel like it gave me so much just like confidence and setting boundaries with, with what I knew that we needed and what I was like, people don't have to understand my life in order for them to be a part of it. You know, like they can say what they want and family members don't understand, friends don't understand. And I'm going to be honest, there are some friendships we don't have anymore because they just simply didn't understand, which is really unfortunate, but it, it just is. And I feel like now I'm like, if they couldn't understand where we were now, like, at that point in our life and respect that and understand that and continue to check in with us. Like then maybe those friends aren't necessarily the friends that, that would be as inclusive as we want them to be with Sam or as understanding going forward. Cause I think for us, like we knew, especially him having down syndrome that like, this wasn't, you know, all mo most, not all preemies catch up, you know, like they don't always, there might be a little bit of a developmental something or other, or there might be, there might be therapies and other things, but for us and Sam, like, you know, we could be his caregivers until he's older. We don't know. And honestly, that's a box I don't even open yet. <laughs> I do not open that. And, you know, but it was just like, it was just so eye-opening to me who was willing to sit with us because through the duration of the hard. And this is where I found that sometimes virtual friends on the on Instagram were a million times more supportive than friends and family. And when we have amazing family, we do have some amazing friends who stuck by us through it all. But I I was completely like, I think that was a, one of the biggest lessons that Pat and I both had was how massively like relationships changed um, because a year later we were still living. We saw a medical, like we had an, a, a step down unit in our bedroom. I mean, right. Lord, we still does. He's still like, he's still in our, in our crib. <laughs> our bed. Like our, you know, our situation isn't totally normal. And so, um, sometimes people just, they're either really understanding or they're not. And it just became, it was so much of a learning curve for us. I feel like as, as adults to, wrap our head around how, how relationships changed from this, you know? Right. Well, and, and I think they do change, um, either for the better in terms of those right. kind of online relationships that you really built because of 
similarities that you're going through and and other relationships that just aren't going to weather this storm. I think what you talk about, about you became more protective of your plate, right? So your plate can only hold so much. And you became very, very intentional about what you put on your plate. And the stuff that falls off, falls off. And that's just fine. I applaud you for having the backbone to stand by your decisions about saying we are or aren't going to do these certain things. Some people have not developed that fortitude yet or have really, really pushy family members that just overwhelm them. And so if for listeners that find themselves in this situation who are wishing that they had as much fortitude as Sarah does, but they're like, I could never say that to my parents. You are always more than welcome to blame that redheaded NICU doctor who said that when your baby is on oxygen, they cannot go to a party. Or if your baby was in the NICU, they cannot go to a party for at least a year. Or you make up whatever criteria you want that makes you feel comfortable as a mom. And then you just tell them that I said it and you blame me. And I am happy to take on that burden for you because sometimes you need to be able to blame somebody else. I mean, I remember in high school saying, yeah, my mom said I couldn't come to that party because I just didn't want to go to that party. And I didn't have, I had not developed the fortitude yet to be able to say, no, I'm not interested in your party. Um, And I don't want to be pressured into doing it. So I'm just going to blame my mom. So all of you NICU moms, all you special needs moms, Anybody who's listening to this, you can just blame me and I'm, I'm happy to take that on for you. Yeah, I think that that is, I think that's so true because again, this goes back, like, you know, you don't want to ruffle, you're trying not to ruffle feathers and you're trying to please everybody, but truthful, I mean, this is what I feel like this is learning what it means to advocate for my child what and I like this is just a drop in the bucket of it because it's um it's all these little events that it was like I can stand up for him I'm gonna stand up for myself what actually does he need it's not about you and always for me in my head was this like what is best for Sam like take Nana grandpa's opinion out of it what is best for them my parents live this with us they literally live around the corner from us and helped us so much with my with my oldest too I think they're the only people who really saw like into the ins and outs of how hard were the few that we let in the NICU and so it was nice because I think they felt the heavy they felt the stress and so anytime a family member even questioned I mean I truthfully I didn't get a lot because I feel like I I really people are probably like, you know, my mom was like, don't message Sarah about this or whatever. (laughs) But I also know that it was like, it was, it wasn't just me saying it as it was also coming from my parents in terms of family members being pushy, because I know like it was really important for my brother and his wife to come up and see Sam. And they came once and I was like, okay, it stressed me out. And after that, I was like, we didn't have any other family come because I was like, I had so much anxiety when they were in that room. Where had they been? What did they touch? Did they wash their fingernails good enough? I'm going to put them, they have gloves on, but like, what else is going on? Have they had a sniffle in the last four weeks that I don't know about people? This is when, oh, I just had a little bit of a, of a allergies. Like that whole conversation like blew up in my head. And I was like, that was a moment for me where I learned if it does, if it's going to cause me more anxiety and more grief, I am not doing it just X, Y, Z. And that has carried over into like 
therapies when I'm not ready and able to carry on with it with Sam that's carried over into, you know, conversations with doctors that I'm not ready to have. Okay. I'm going to table this. Like I, I think it comes with, it just comes with the, like with the years and I hadn't even been his mom for a long time, three years, but we've been through so much in three years that I think like with every time that you follow your gut as a mom, and especially as a caregiver of a child with special needs, you know, it's going to reinforce what you already know that you are doing the right thing that you are following your intuition and your gut and it has never failed me with him i mean our picu experience he came home was home for three weeks and we were in the picu for um 42 days i believe the doctor wanted to put a trach in him and i that was my i feel like my cup like like literally the moment of the Lion King holding up a baby of like presenting yourself to this world. It was like my, my coming out moment. I feel like as a mom of a child with special needs, cause I, I fought like a dog medical director, like was not happening. Give him time, let him prove himself. You know, y'all don't know him. It was a completely different team of doctors, completely different area of a hospital. And it was like, I was losing it. And it was like, it taught me what it meant to truly advocate and not back down. And what do you, lo and behold, he went home on his, a fourth of a liter, two weeks later with no peg drinking his bottles. Like I, I could punch somebody. Like it made me so angry because it's like, you know, and somebody said, I do see a therapist now, you know, all this trauma and everything. And she said something to me the other day that I thought was so um, was so just like, was so fitting for this journey and where we are as special needs moms, where we are going to the doctors and we want them to have all these, like that we want them to be the expert, right? Because we want to offload a burden and we want somebody to tell us what to do at the end of the day. We also know our children the best. And she said something that's like, you know, a lot of times people think a relationship with a physician is a vertical relationship. They're higher than you. They know more than you it's a hierarchy where she's like, it really is a horizontal relationship where they, they should meet you where you are at the table and say, tell me about your child. What do you know compared to what he's doing? And this is what we're suggesting. And that was not how that experience was. And it was just so pivotal for her to say that. Cause I was just like, it's not common. And for me to fight I'm sure people were looking at me like, but I just didn't care because I knew at the end of the day, I was like them saying that's not that big of a deal. It's a massive life change. It's a game changer because you can take, even even if, even if with a G-tube, a little bit of oxygen in a G-tube, right. you can still get in an RV, get in a car, drive across the country, go see family, hike up a mountain with a baby carrier, yeah. all that kind of stuff. When you add a trach, that now comes with a vent and it comes with suction and it comes with the need for electricity everywhere you are. And that is a very different thing. Um, You are not the first mom that has talked about the difference between being in the NICU and being in the PICU, the PICU. Um, They are really are very different worlds. Um, And I think sometimes when we discharge kids that have a high probability of being readmitted or who have 
ongoing significant medical needs like feeding tubes or seizures or chromosomal anomalies or trachs and and oxygen need um we could do a better job of setting parents up to realize that the NICU really is its own world and it is very different than any other place in the hospital and that is that includes the pediatric floor and the the pediatric ICU which are literally you go home and then you come back in three weeks later and now you're in a totally different unit with different doctors and different relationships and I think the NICU what I like about the NICU world is that for the most part there are outliers I know there's outliers I hear the stories for the most part NICU doctors want parents to be partners in the care. I want to know your opinion. You know your baby better than I do, period. I know more about the medical stuff, but you know the ins and outs of your baby better than I do because you are with him more than I am. And so we need to have that conversation. You need to let me know all the information you have. And I need to educate you about all the medical information that I have so that together we can make a decision that's best for your baby. And I don't know that that happens as much outside the NICU as it does in the NICU. That being said, I only live inside the NICU and I really pride myself on making parents my partner. That's that's like my my right. thing. Like I love that about the NICU, um, and I know it's not like right. that everywhere. But but people should really listen to what you're saying about advocating because you should be able to oh. advocate. And if you don't like the relationship that you have with somebody or a doctor, it's okay to ask for somebody else. We are people too, and we're gonna have different personalities and. You're going to like some of us more than others, and that's okay. For the most part, we're all well-trained, and we can do the medical part, but we all have personalities. And if you really aren't getting along with one of your doctors, don't make a huge decision about your baby's life without asking to talk to somebody else. It's totally fine. So I want to switch gears just a little bit. You know, you said you started your coaching business when you had your two kids, And then you went through all of this Mm -hmm. with Sam and you now fall under this category of special needs mom. How do you think that has changed or improved or kind of surrounded who you are as a coach and what you hope to accomplish through that? I feel like it's made me, his journey as a whole has just made me a better person as it's been hard, but there's also so much growth. So like as coaches, like, it's like our job is like to take care of ourselves. It's like, you become the best version of you because you are like, you know, you're working on like your health and you're getting healthy and you're getting happy for maybe the first time in a long time. And that's kind of like where my experience with it started. Cause after Noah, like I had such bad postpartum depression at the time, I didn't really know that that's what it was. But I just remember something so simple as like having a community of women who were also in a similar phase of life. I literally log a workout and take a crazy, ridiculous, sweaty selfie. But it was so empowering to me to be among other women who were also struggling, overcoming, and just like in a similar phase as me. And so I was like, this is so amazing. (laughs) And I loved feeling like I wasn't alone you know, but also as an introvert, like these are also people that I hadn't met before. So it wasn't like I was having to like go and like be in a big group of people and share, which sounds so ironic considering the platform and what it is, 
but I am at heart more of a homebody and an introvert. And so this was just me having like finding a virtual community that I really loved and like people who, you know, where I was able to connect with, with very unique experiences. And I think through Sam having so much perspective for just life and health and not take each day for granted, wanting to pursue like, and create and accomplish things that like, and say, I could do things and encourage him and be the best example for not just him, but like all my kids, you know, I feel like it just, it's kind of like they just intertwined and to just like, because through coaching, you, you become a best version of yourself through Sam. Like I found out who I truly was as a person. Like I, I am more giving, more empathetic, more compassionate than I've ever been. I feel like I did possess some of those qualities before, but I think now, like I have a capacity to just relate and provide support on a level that I wouldn't have previously. I think coaching just gave me kind of a platform to reach more people, to be able to say like, this is how, like, this is how I'm surviving. Um, and it's amazing now because not all, but a lot of my groups are filled with women in very similar life situations. And so it's just so cool because it's just created this place. And what I always loved is like, you know, like on Instagram, like creating relationships through like engagement and like connecting people and being able to facilitate those relationships to me is like kind of just giving me peace and comfort and healing in my own way by like helping other people through their hard, like showing them a light and showing them that it's not always easy, but like you will be, there's another side of it. It's not, it's not always going to be dark. There is light, you know, and however hard that road is, you know, like there's always somebody else that is, that is navigating that too. And I think, you know, social media gets a bad rap for being negative, especially during COVID and with you know, everything else that's headed this year with election, you know, like social media can get a very bad rap for being so negative, but I truthfully, even to this day, like it's been such a positive in my life. Like, and I have relationships with people I would have never met otherwise. And I think it just created this safe space for me to be me and like share my truth and let people know like that you're not alone in this and create a place where, you know, women feel empowered and they feel encouraged to, you know, like as caregivers of what we will be of kids with medical needs, like to not, you know, like that they matter too, you know, and that there is that they can, you know, be them, be their best self and show up for their kids in a way that they want to and be healthy and, you know, live, live a life that, you know, where they can carry their kids. Like I have a mom who's, whose daughter can't walk. And she's like, I can lift her out of the bed now. And like, like, that's a big flipping deal, you know, and it's not a common scenario, but I just think like stuff like that, like giving them their power back, you know, like self-care is kind of like how I took that control and a little piece that I could gain control of in a world that was chaos this was like something so small but it was like something that I could control in a world where I felt like I had no control whatsoever yeah no I can, I can totally see that and I think it doesn't matter if you're trying to control you know I, I want to control this 30 minutes of my life to give right. something to myself whether right. that's taking a bath or having a drink uh, or enjoying a cup of right. tea or 
getting in right. a workout, you know, carve out that small amount of space right. to right. to control whatever it is that you can control so that you have okay. the fortitude. I feel like I've said that several times today um, to go back out and deal with what is hard, because I think right. I'll go back to the feeling two things at once portion of this. I think we have a hard time sometimes being willing to say my life is wonderful and my life really sucks today or I had a really hard day and I am exhausted but I'm still grateful that I had the day right you know you 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 really do I have no control over over my life I do have control over this tiny little piece of it so yeah that's those are my thoughts on that What did I not ask you about that you that you would like to talk about, if anything? I don't know. Um, I don't know. I feel like we covered a lot of it. Um, I think the there what the thing that we I was least prepared for would be his life after the NICU and I did touch on that some like we weren't like when we had the tube feeds and the like like home nursing was never even brought into the question and I think it's because I was a nurse myself so people just assume Sarah's got it like you know when we had to do the in-service on putting in an NG tube I was like Pat don't do it I've got this like you know like it was I think there was maybe like, I came across as overly confident. So they were like, Sarah's gosh. <laughs> but at the time I was like, it didn't, it didn't dawn on me until again, someone on Instagram was like, they didn't send you home with like, Hey, there's a nurse that could come in a few hours. And I was like, no, <laughs> the funny thing is, is I didn't accept it when we even did get it. I was like, no, I'm fine. But, um, I was just so not prepared by how hard that would be. It was almost harder than him being in the NICU in different ways and a different hard. You're like you said, you're thankful, but it's overwhelming. It's now, he's now home with all the same stuff he had in the hospital, but now I am trying to take care of two other kids and be home too. You know, um, it was a lot. And I think that was, oh my gosh, some of the hard, our hardest times, but um, i trying to think. Yeah, I definitely think there's space for more support. And, and I and I don't mean support like medical community support or home nursing, but just um, more support from people who have been there before, from people who know what you're getting ready to go through, from right. people who have helped people go through it before. There's room for more of that for the transition home, because I think a lot of people, so of the last kind of five interviews that I've done with moms where they're either have come out or will be coming out. Um, a lot of them talk about that feeling of great. We get to go home. Oh, shoot. We have to go home. Right. Like, and you don't even know what you're going to be walking into sometimes and it and it does feel overwhelming so um i would love to try to figure out how to make that support happen and be better when you're already so overwhelmed how do you add something more to your plate to feel like you are more supported i think that's going to be the challenge for most parents 
So um, as we wrap things up, yeah. the question that I always ask everybody is, what are you grateful for today? Oh my gosh. Um, I'm grateful for Sam's resilience and for his, um, and our adaptability as a family to just overcome all the odds, everything that has ever been stacked against him. He has, he has proved everybody wrong. We've started a new little school here for him, which has been life-changing. And Pat and I were like, we are, we're going to wait outside in case he needs us. <laughs> he was like, see ya. <laughs> if he could have thrown up a peace sign, he would have been like, see ya later. Cause he was, I mean, he, he might've had a few tears, but he has adapted so well. And I think he just continues to like enrich all of our lives in so many ways. And I feel like our family, even like my parents, it's just like, he just brings so much joy and light to us every single day that even in the most impossible situations and even in the hardest times, like he's still like our greatest adventure and probably the biggest thing. I, I'm just so incredibly proud to be his parent. And even, even when it's hard, he still is just making us all like such better people and making our lives so much better just for being in it. I mean, even our children are just, it's like every, he's everybody's light. He's just this source of joy. And I'm just grateful for all that he's overcome and like where we are now to be able to be here. I mean, I don't, there's not too many people who thought we would make it to yeah. this point. No, you know? that's awesome. Those are good things to be grateful for. Well, thank you so much for coming on the podcast and sharing all of your experience and your knowledge. I think it'll really be helpful to people who are listening. And I just so appreciate you being, being willing to um, give up some of your time to hang out with me tonight. Of course. Thank you so much. This was such an honor. So thank you for having me. You're welcome. You keep saying it, Walt. No. Podcast. Thank you.